From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org slash holiness. Greetings and thanks for listening in. This is Vern Jewett talking with you today from sunny Florida. And we have a great topic to share with each other. We're going to study and rejoice in the sufficiency of Christ to meet every need in our lives. Our foundational text is found in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 9. Now, Paul's story and teaching here ought to be a great encouragement to every Christian. Listen to these words. They may be familiar to you. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Did you hear that? There may not be a more clear statement about how you and I can live holy lives than this one. In this vision, Paul hears the Lord saying to him, My grace is sufficient. And then he spells it out for the apostle. Your contribution, Paul, is weakness. My contribution is power. His grace is the key. His grace brings the strength. It is sufficient in every situation. Now, I'm hoping that you saw yourself in the text. I saw myself here. Your weakness and my weakness is not an impediment to spiritual power. It is the contribution each of us make. Humbly, willingly, bringing all that we are to Christ. The teaching of Paul here is reminiscent of Jesus' profound teaching in John 15, 6, when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me share a story with you. Outside of the day I accepted Christ as my Savior, the happiest day of my life was the day I married Martha over 44 years ago. Now, we were married in Atlanta, even though we were going to live in Wilmore, Kentucky, where we were both students. So following the wedding, we went on a short honeymoon and arrived back in Wilmore at our first home, a small trailer. (laughs) Some of our friends had brought our wedding gifts from Atlanta, and they were waiting for us in our new home. We opened them, had a great time seeing what our friends and family had given to us. Then I turned my attention to the boxes of Martha's belongings, which also were awaiting us. I'd been living in this little trailer for three months, getting it ready. When it hit me, Voila! Now that we were married 
everything I owned was now Martha's, and everything she owned was now mine. And we shared each other's liabilities. There were enough liabilities, primarily in school loans, which were now combined, and together were a pretty sizable amount that we both owed. But even though they were meager in comparison, we did have some assets. It was like Christmas morning. The feeling came over me, and I began opening her boxes to see what I now owned. It was great. I remember being most excited to discover that I now owned a popcorn popper. Martha loves popcorn to this day. Friends, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uses the metaphor of marriage specifically referring to Christ as the groom and we the church as his bride. So when Jesus says to Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness, he is asserting that his assets are now ours. As we are married to him, we are his bride. Through his grace, he is completely sufficient for any and all circumstances, for every believer. But, dear friends, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. We make the choice. He doesn't force his will upon us. You see, like the Corinthian church, we can trade the transforming power of the Holy Spirit even for something that stunts our spiritual growth. In 1 Corinthians 3, the first four verses, Paul calls them fleshly or carnal Christians and says that in their immaturity, they act like mere men. And they are not mature. They are like babies in Christ. I must admit that as a college student, I had an experience, maybe, I hope not, but maybe you've had as well. My bank returned a check I had written with a large stamped message, Returned for Insufficient Funds. How embarrassing. It was there for all to see that I did not have the resources I needed when I called upon them. In contrast, God has all we need. His resources are beyond our understanding. There are no stamps marked returned with him, only sufficient resources. Isn't it encouraging to know that we don't have to muster up enough strength to live for the Lord? Living a holy life is beyond our power, but not beyond his power. We too have all the riches of the Holy Spirit at our disposal. His grace is sufficient. You get the feeling from the text that Paul was in regular conversation with the Lord, probably all day long, about his thorn in the flesh. His relationship with the Lord obviously was a living, walking, and talking relationship. It included all his activities, all the challenges he faced. Remember, righteousness and holiness are about a living relationship not about meeting some standard of behavior. This is a great encouragement to me. My own experience shouts out agreement with Paul. Yes, I am weak, 
and I don't experience God's strength when I'm oblivious to his presence. I can get caught up in the things of life, and before I know it, I've taken the helm of living as though I've got this, Lord. I'm like Moses, who wound up disobeying God when he struck the rock instead of following the Lord's command to speak to it. Do you remember that story? It's recorded in Numbers 20. Moses' words betray his tragic choice and his mistaken self-confidence. Here's the story. The wandering Israelites were in Kadesh, and there was no water. God tells Moses to take his staff and then speak to the rock in front of all the people and the water they so desperately needed would flow. So Moses takes his staff and addresses the people, saying, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses struck the rock twice, and water gushed out, and all the community and livestock drank. Then God rebukes Moses for his disobedience and tells him that he will not enter the promised land because he failed to honor him as holy in the eyes of the Israelites. Wow! How did Moses become so caught up with himself? Uh, did you notice the judgmental words? Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water? That he actually disobeyed God? He obviously was remembering the previous experience in the same general location recorded back in Exodus 17 when God had him strike the rock to bring forth water. I believe the problem was that Moses focused his attention on the plan and took his eyes off of the planner. You see, when that happens, when we focus on the plan, the myriad of circumstances in life with all of its details, to the extent that we neglect the planner and our relationship with him, we are depending on ourselves and our weakness, not the grace of God, which is sufficient and the source of power. In over 40 years of pastoring, I have many times met with Christians who are struggling in their faith. Often, I shared Moses' story with them and helped them see that they were so consumed with the plan that they were neglecting the planner. When that happens, the first step is always to reaffirm our total dependence upon God and His sufficiency. Living a holy life means being in right relationship with God right now and all the time. How can we avoid making that mistake? How can we keep our guard up and avoid the subtle ways that Satan will tempt us to take back control? Satan wants us to temporarily lose awareness of God's grace and to unknowingly begin depending on our own sufficiency. Very early in our ministry, a wonderful Salvation Army officer named Lieutenant Colonel Frank Moss gave us a prayer that has been a great help to me in this regard. I want to share that prayer with you 
and use it as an outline for the rest of this study. It has helped me embrace the scriptural teaching on the sufficiency of Christ. Even more, it has helped in my daily living to keep my relationship with God open and complete. Here is the prayer. O Lord, thy will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, at any cost. Amen. The five simple petitions in this prayer have helped me guard against the dangers we all face as Christians to become self-reliant rather than God-reliant. First, O Lord, thy will. Beginning with thy will helps to protect us from a self-serving prayer life. Those two words put all of our requests and petitions, even those that come out of pain and hurt and confusion, into perspective. No wonder it's right near the start of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches us to say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed or holy, be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No wonder Jesus models it in the most agonizing moment of his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he makes his anguished request to the Father that this cup be taken from me, referring, of course, to his death. He then says, Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he prays it a second time as well. The holy life is committed to seeking God's will first. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 1-3, Paul says, and I want you to hear the whole passage here, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. In other words, to be made holy. And this whole teaching is in the context of sexual immorality. In Romans 12, 2, very famous verse, Paul says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Among the many times Paul speaks of God's will is the wonderful thread of thought found in Philippians 1 and 2. Early in chapter 1, Paul tells the Philippian believers that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He picks up on that teaching again in 2.12 when he says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he didn't say work for your salvation or work at your salvation because it's a gift from God. No, he said work out your salvation. Live it out. Live it on a daily basis. And then he says, for it is God who works in you to will 
and to act according to his good purpose. God wants to conform your will to his. Did you notice that he does this by working in you both to will and to act according to his purposes? In other words, God can change your wants. God changes our will to his will as we grow in him. We need to ask God in our prayers to change our wants, our desires, our will as he pleases. Then we can walk in his will. His will, nothing more. This second petition acknowledges the clash between kingdom culture and the culture of the world around us. Some of us are so planted and rooted in the culture around us that we are always trying to do more, in effect, adding to God's will for our lives. Most pastors have seen it happen over and over again. In our American culture, it often involves achievement and success. This is an unbelievably vulnerable place where Satan loves to gain a stranglehold. He rejoices when we replace God's will as the driving force of our lives with the human standards of success and achievement. It was 1985. I was sitting with a crowd of 1,500 people in a large amphitheater located in a kibbutz on the Sea of Galilee in Israel. It was the first and only worldwide gathering of Salvation Army pastors and members in that country where Jesus lived and walked. But what I've never forgotten was the message that night from General Jarl Wallström, the international leader of the Salvation Army, when he issued a strong caution against an adulterous blend of Jesus and success. Friends, can we be honest with each other about this matter of worldly success? This is a hard but timely word for us. I know the issues are complicated, but even Christian leaders and mature Christians are vulnerable here. Max Lucado has the gift of speaking God's word right into our life situations and right into our living rooms. Here is how he describes the danger of worldly success for Christians in his book, Outlive Your Life. Gradually, our big God changes us. And gratefully, we lust less, love more, lash out less, look heavenward more. We pay bills, pay attention to spouses, pay respect to humans. People notice the difference. They applaud us, promote us, admire us, appoint us. We dare to outlive our lives. We who came to Christ as sinful, soiled, and small accomplish things. We build orphanages, lead companies, why we even write books. We don't feel so small anymore. People talk to us as if we are something special. You have great influence. What strong faith you have. We need mighty saints like you. Feels nice. 
we begin to elevate ourselves. We shed our smallness, discard our Clark Kent glasses, and don a Superman swagger. We forget who brought us here. Can you see how easily Satan can convince us that we've earned our success and thus are self-sufficient? Just like that, we have crossed the line. One more word of caution. The prevailing standard of success in America today is financial freedom and an affluent lifestyle. It is rooted so deeply in our culture, so ingrained in our surroundings, that it is a given in our schools, workplaces, and homes. Does anyone doubt that it often usurps God's will as the driving force in Christians' lives? But we cannot lower God's standards. We don't own anything we have, whether it's houses or cars or clothes, bank accounts or worldly valuables. No, we are simply stewards Everything we have, ever have had, or ever will have belongs to God, not to us. The message to the church at Laodicea about their being lukewarm included these words. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked from Revelation 3. All my life I've watched congregations and been part of congregations lavishing attention and praise and engaging in more than a little envy and jealousy on those who are worldly successful. We need to be careful and to heed the cautions in Scripture. When we pray thy will, nothing more, we're asking God to keep us from adding anything that would lessen our total dependence upon him. His grace is sufficient, for his power is made perfect in weakness. Thy will, nothing more, nothing less. Okay, let's talk about comfortable Christians. There are some wonderful things about being comfortable, being settled in, into a community, a home or a church that is now woven into the fabric of your life. Perhaps that describes some of you who are listening. Isn't that a good thing you say? To know people and to be known? And maybe to watch pastors come and go over the years? The answer is a qualified yes. Being comfortable among what is well known to you can be a good thing unless it has compromised your service to God and others, unless you are now offering God less than all of yourself to live for his glory. Being settled and content without a vibrant living relationship with Christ can lead to spiritual laziness. We can become so comfortable that our spiritual life begins to coast along, and the familiarity of it all becomes an anesthetic. I have to be honest with you. I fear that our church pews hold many Christians for whom things are out of joint in their inner life. 
There's no sense of God sustaining, backing, approving of their daily living. There can even be a sense of futility about it all, of not getting anywhere, of being up against it. Romans 6.13 applies to all of us for our whole lives. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments for righteousness. In the body of Christ, there are no superfluous people, no unimportant people, no people who have arrived. Apathy, disengagement, and spiritual laziness are as deadly in the church as the more frontal attacks of Satan. Such things will strip you of your spiritual joy. You'll feel like you're just going through the motions, and others will notice. The great missionary E. Stanley Jones used to have a canary that would not sing until it had its bath. Some of us are like that. Life simply won't sing. Something lies songless within us unless we are bathed with the cleansing of our fears and uncertainties and guilt by the presence of God's Holy Spirit. Are you experiencing a dynamic, alive relationship with Christ today? That's God's plan for you. Even if you are at a point in life where things have slowed down and the activity level has subsided. If you still have breath, then Ephesians 4.24 applies to you as well as to me. Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Nothing less than God's best will do for you and for me. Thy will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. I want to handle this petition rather quickly because it is actually related to the previous two petitions. If nothing more speaks of adding human standards to God's will, and nothing less speaks of sliding into spiritual laziness, then to pray nothing else but God's will is to assert that there is no substitute for our complete allegiance to God. Our lives can be filled with many good and holy things. Family, vocation, volunteering for good causes, hobbies, and a host of other things can be spiritually beneficial parts of our lives. They can all bring honor to God and can be expressions of Christian love to those around us. Perhaps you have experienced or know someone who has substituted a good thing for the real thing. Nothing must usurp Christ as our all-sufficient Lord and Savior. Our relationship to Christ is a matter of the heart, the seat of our will. However, as we give ourselves completely to the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we have the only real thing. John 14.23 says, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit are in us. Colonel Brian Tuck used to call the Holy Spirit the love knot of the Trinity. And we are in Christ. 
1 Corinthians 1.30 asserts that it is because of him, that is God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Well, friends, if Christ is our righteousness, and Christ is our holiness, and Christ is our redemption, then the righteousness must be his, the holiness must be his, the redemption must be his, and we must be his, complete in Christ. No substitutes, nothing else. And now we come to a final petition that pours into this prayer the reality of everyday living for every Christian. Thy will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, at any cost. Amen. When our son Booth was six years old, he came to Martha one day with a concerned look on his face and asked her, Mom, do you know what it means to be in the depths of despair? Naturally, she was taken back by such a question from a six-year-old, thinking, where did that come from? Eventually, she found out that Booth's two older sisters had been reading to him each night from the literary classic Anne of Green Gables. And apparently in the story, Anne had tried to dye her hair and it turned green, which led to her description in the story as being in the depths of despair. Now for us, the green hair probably doesn't warrant the description. It may cause us a chuckle, in fact. But life itself will always bring the common experiences of facing pain, suffering, and uncertainty. And many of us know what the depths of despair feel like, up close and personal. Additionally, really trusting Jesus and following him often will cost us something. Do you remember his words, if a man would follow me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Here's the rub of discipleship. Some folks want to adopt Jesus as their pal, their security blanket. David McKenna, writing in his commentary on Mark, says, Sermon after sermon extols secular success as the norm of Christian life and guarantees either freedom or relief from suffering. But Jesus says, not so. Life will have its struggles. 2 Corinthians includes Paul's hardship catalogs. Look in chapter 6 and look in chapter 11. Probably all of us at some time will have a thorn in the flesh, like Paul. Paul was obviously troubled, even distraught, by his thorn in the flesh. But no matter what it was, and we don't know, He's using it to illustrate this great truth about holy living. Christ is sufficient in all times, in all things. The troubles of life touch us all, and they are real. But God is faithful, and his promise to us remains. 
He will provide the power to go through any and all circumstances. His grace is sufficient. I want us to think honestly and openly of ourselves and others as we bring this study to a close. Some of us are in distress, maybe in utter despair today. Some of us are overcome by suffering and pain, maybe your own or maybe a family member's circumstances. I love the song by Joseph Henry Gilmore, He Leadeth Me. I've sung the words many times, By waters still, o'er troubled seas, still tis my God that leadeth me. I want to ask you a question or two. Are you at the end of your resources? Well, to be at the end of man's resources is not to be at the end of God's resources. In fact, it is to be precisely in the position where you can prove and benefit from them the most. You can experience the power of God breaking through and resolving the human dilemma. Your grace is sufficient for me. Do you feel, as we've studied, that your weakness is a barrier to God's purposes? As Paul perceives, there's a particular purpose behind the almost incredible contrast, the greatness of the treasure and the unworthiness of the vessel. One of the main purposes of 2 Corinthians is to show the immense discrepancy between the treasure and the vessel. Human weakness presents no barrier to the purposes of God. In fact, God's power is made perfect in weakness as the brilliance of the treasure is enhanced and magnified by comparison by a common container in which it is placed. You see, the lesson of the thorn in the flesh is the same lesson as 2 Corinthians 4, 7, which is eight chapters earlier, when Paul says we have this treasure in human vessels, in earthen vessels, in mud pots, in order that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. I hope we are all aware that we must depend completely on God. We must seek to do His will. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, at any cost. His grace is sufficient. Amen. Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts.